0: Let's get started. Uh, when I first got into children's ministry years and years ago, a million years ago, um, I was brought on um, to the team primarily to play funny characters. Um, and, uh, Esther and I were kind of freshly out of Bible college. The church we were at was kind of a new plant, and we were involved in almost every uh, element of the church ministry somewhere except for children's ministry, and, uh, and the the children's ministry at the church we were at always had at least one element of the service where a character would come in and uh, somebody dressed goofy and with a goofy voice or whatever um, the interest of the teacher and the kids or both and the show's does time had heard that I had done um, some acting in high school and still did some goofy voices and storytelling um, in character at times and so he asked uh, if I would play a character one Sunday and, uh, which led me, um, to very quickly spend every single week in church ministry. From so I wrote all the children's curriculum for the church, and, uh, and, uh, until I took a position as church pastor at another church, first we were at the board, uh, years ago, um, uh, where I met a bunch of people from this church. Um, and all this started because I knew how to be someone other than myself, uh, Uh, the first children's pastor and I worked uh, together all the time and we wound up doing countless skits together where we were both completely in character um, one of which was actually a paid gig where we were invited to the Leeward Chamber of Commerce annual appreciation dinner in in full character Um, we were the entertainment but no one at the party was informed of that except for the event planner and so uh, they were told that There would be a business presentation in the midst of the the dinner um, that would involve an investment opportunity. So, in full character, Kevin and I show up uh, to the dinner, which is a mostly formal catered event. um, And he is... The professor, which is this rip-off he did of Jerry Lewis, is nutty professor from way back in the day, and, it, and he nailed it. it was, if you've seen the Jerry Lewis you know exactly who this character was. Um, oh, I was Debbie it Epperman, it was, um, who was this character that I had picked up from a comedian um, <laughs> that I don't even remember who he was, but picked up in, like, early high school and had always done this voice. I had all these stories I would tell in this full character voice. Um, and, uh, and so, we show up, I'm carrying a duffel bag, and we go through the bu- fancy buffet line with everybody up where I start making plates of food that I would then unzip my duffel bag and put the food into. None of this was planned. This was all ad-lib, and, uh, and then I took about 20 cans of soda and lined all the edges and crevices of my duffel bag, including three pieces of cake um, into the, <laughs> the duffel bag. We went around, introduced ourselves to everyone shook hands um, in full character, full character voices, the whole deal, and uh, and we had, we had probably been there 20 minutes and there had not been a single laugh, not even a chuckle, like total dry room, nobody got it out of the couple hundred people that were in this room, and so we go until it was time for the business presentation, and it wasn't until um, we took their kind of small stage they had put together. That so people started to figure out what was happening, and we saw our first couple smiles, like people started to get it a little bit. And then, as the professor began to lay out the tax benefits and great fiscal opportunity hidden in the mostly untapped market uh, market of gerbil farming, did um, the real laughter finally began. And as he asked me for our first uh, bit of visual presentation, drafting the absolutely absurd, lucrative. Reproductive power of the female turbo. Um, I sat down on the floor and opened my duffel bag and started to carefully lay out plates of food and all 20 sodas that I carefully stacked. And by the time I finished getting the cake out and the sodas out and the food out, the place was roaring with laughter. And uh, and, uh, and and we did a about a 25 minute presentation that kept the uh, overtime room this is the entire time, and we were immediately invited back to be next year's um, entertainment uh, for the event. But uh, about a week later, Kevin and I um, were about to go on stage, in these two Hillbilly characters we had. Um, I can't remember what his it was called, mine was called, Cousin Cooter. And uh, in a rare moment of breaking character, Kevin, just before on stage, went to me and goes, Do you ever feel like you are Cooter and you just play Chris? I was <laughs> uh, like, uh because we were so natural so in character together that uh that it didn't even feel like I had anymore. It felt like you had become another person. Uh and I had this process of how to fall deeply into a character um that, that we were playing. Um so I knew exactly what he meant. Um uh about 18, 19 years ago uh when the when the church uh needed a worship leader, um uh, to play in the church youth group, they asked me if I would do it, um, and I realized kind of the full power power of being a character um, uh, because I'm actually terrified to sing in front of people. I mean, it actually makes me quite nauseous um, to sing in front of people. I know I don't have a great voice, and as much as I love music and love singing, something about microphones and hearing my own voice makes like my whole throat tighten up, which is not conducive you know, to singing. Um, and so, though, uh, I really wanted to be helpful and fill in whatever role the church needed, worship leading, which just not uh, really viable. Except, much like uh, our worship team here at the table, when a spot needed to be filled, I always wanted to fill it, like, whatever somebody needs to in. so I said yes and was immediately overwhelmed with anxiety, like, like what have I done? This is insane. Um. And what about shared these nerves with people, they were—they would—they would act like I was crazy. They were like, "You get up and make a fool out of yourself in these goofy characters on a regular basis. Um, how in the world can you be embarrassed or nervous about singing like it's, it's so bizarre?" Um, uh, and They're they like, "You even went to the Leewood Chamber of Commerce and just stayed in character for 20 minutes without even a laugh. Like, how can how can this be what makes you nervous?" Um, and uh, uh, and so it seemed like it seemed ludicrous, but it was it was my anxiety It's what I had to deal with. It. But this did give me an idea. When people kind of kind of uh, rationalize that you can play these goofy characters. Why would you not be able to see? And so, um, so what I would do is whenever uh, whenever I would do a character for church, I had one piece of the costume, whatever like, it was. For Cooter, it was his hat. Or Eppie, it was his glasses. Whatever that piece went on, it was like that is when you are. The other character when you're in, and you do not come out. If I had to kind of talk firmly to a kid, or if I had to talk to a parent, it didn't matter. I was in character. Once that piece of costume was on, I was that person. Period. And so, um, what I did to kind of overcome my crippling nerves about seeing in front of people was I created in my own head a worship leader character. Um, I had to make this person that wasn't me. Um, uh, it was similar to me, um, but you know, a tiny bit different. Um, and my guitar strap was my final piece of my character. So I would stand there whenever I put my guitar on, there was traffic over my head. I wasn't me anymore. I was, uh, I was the was of worship in the character. I didn't name any really weird. It turned out it's not weird enough to create a fake name so I could feel the anxiety, but whatever. Um, and when are have it really doesn't work. Although it didn't like magically make me a great singer, a great guitar player, the kind of brutal anxiety part, um, uh, which went away with this little mental trick that I played, became manageable. Uh, and then eventually, I was able to kind of drop the character and, and start to uh, enjoy uh, singing anyway. But uh, the third thing that reminded me this week. As I prepare for uh, our third week of this year's identity series titled, The Real Open Table, uh, we're kind of leaning into this idea of authenticity. Uh, not just being authentic, but making space for authenticity. Because as useful uh, as, as a character might be, if you have to get up in front of people and sing, and, uh, in, a, in a regular relationship and context, being yourself is better. Uh, and maybe even essential, if you're going to grow and be healthy. Um, And as we always do this every year, we um, are reminding ourselves uh, what it means to be OTCC. And as we do every year, we're zooming in on the four aspects of human existence that are so kind of deeply rooted um, into us that we really don't even know that they're there until we pause and highlight them. Um, And then we see just how these four things encompass what it means to be a human in a broken world. A long time ago, God placed a perfect man in a garden and built him a perfect mate and set them to, to work in a perfect world uh, while interacting with a perfect God. Um, human got to experience about ten minutes um, of what uh, was supposed to what it was supposed to mean to be human, and, uh, and we get just a glimpse of that reality in the beginning of our Bibles. Uh, because we see enough to recognize the exact moment when everything went south. Uh, two weeks ago, we looked at our broken relationship with God, uh, which has been the focus of much of what the church has talked about for the past 2,000 years. Uh, and understandably so. Um, when God shows up in the garden after Adam and Eve had decided to choose for themselves what was good and evil, um, Adam hid from God, uh, from this God who had made him and completely resourced him and commissioned him and befriended him, this God whom Adam uh, must have assumed um, didn't only know all but kind of was all, and Adam hid from him for the first time ever, um, saw the desire to be separate from God. Um, and tell me you can't name ten people right now uh, without even taking heart and still live in that moment, that moment of hiding from God, that moment of um, trying to create space between them and the God who made them and loved them. Um, some of us <laughs> are in that moment. Um, we can we can feel God knocking on the doors of our hearts, and rather than run to Him, trusting that whatever He wants, it must be good, instead we hide. We, we, we run from that moment. This is the human condition. And somebody back in Genesis, 3,500 years ago or 6,000 years ago, who knows when this story was told, um, captured that piece of the human condition, that desire to hide from God. Um, but then we talk uh, about our tendency to, in our desire to stop hiding, uh, that we must, that we have a tendency to create God in our own image. Uh, something that looks similar to ourselves. We run to a God who likes the people we like um, and who doesn't like the people that we just happen to also not really like. The God that we don't hide from uh, is the God who happens to vote the same way that we vote and is really serious about the same sins that we're really serious about, which just happen to be the ones we don't usually struggle with real bad. Um, I mean, he doesn't like exactly the same stuff we do, um, because we don't really like the stuff we do either sometimes, Um, but none of those things like disqualifying us, disqualifying stuff that really bugs God is the stuff that those people do, not the stuff that I do, which is super convenient, actually, Um, but this year we're discussing what it means to be real in church, and I think that starts with accepting the real God, the way God presents Himself to us, not the God we create um, for ourselves, Um, but accept Him for who He is and refuse to make Him into our own image. He's a God who has impossibly high standards that none of us could ever meet and yet loves us and not only us but all those other sinners um, who can't make it either. Last week, Reg talked about um, the broken relationship with our purpose, uh, with our vocation. I actually asked Reg to Preach that particular subject because I've always had this issue with um, preachers—not uh, me, of course—I'm perfect, but other preachers. Um, uh, I've worked construction in my entire life, my entire adult life, and I like it. I like craftsmanship. Um, I like the feeling of making something beautiful. I even like the people, who often aren't the same type of people I come in contact uh, with in church. Um, they have a work down-to-earth language. Um, sometimes with even colorful uh, additives um, that I also came to like. Um, I like that world. And if I'm honest, um, I've always had a hard time with pastors who work in a Christian environment, in a church environment surrounded by Christian people who use Christian words. Um, and then they stand on stage and tell a bunch of people how they should act in a work environment. I've, I've always struggled with that honestly. Um, uh, I know it's judgy of me, but I can't help it. Um, it's always fun to um, so when Rich, um, who had been a career pastor uh, his entire life and knew uh, that he wanted to go that route since, like, middle school, entered the secular work world, um, I was very intrigued uh, to see how that was going to go. Um, honestly, I, I uh, was watching closely, and I have to be honest, virtually nothing has changed uh, in the way Reg approaches life and ministry after changing uh, the location of his vocation from a church building to a Walgreens to a Walmart. Literally, the only thing that has changed is that instead of ministering to students, he's now ministering to fellow employees. Like his his approach to life has not changed. I thought it'd be awesome to have him um, speak last week. So, who else better to talk to us about that fusion? Between the cultural mandate, which is what we call that moment when God said, "Go, be fruitful, multiply, govern the earth," we call that the cultural mandate. That humans were were commissioned from the very beginning of existence to to go do things. It wasn't just live in the garden and eat the fruit all day. It was go, build, govern, grow things, like uh, make culture. We call it the cultural mandate, that first command that humans got. Uh, and there's a weird fusion between the cultural mandate. Um, where we're supposed to advance and build and, and grow things, and the, the Great Commission, where we're supposed to go and advance God's kingdom and make disciples. Um, so those, those things are both still in play. We have to figure out how those both work. We're still called to the, to the, to the cultural mandate. We're still called to the Great Commission, because I think that's where we have a tendency to get goofy. Um, the New Testament is so Great Commission-heavy uh, and rightfully so, that we have a tendency to get overbalanced that way, and we forget that uh, we not only have a call, but deep wiring for vocation that we are designed for. Um, that came with the human condition, that we're told to do things, and to have purpose and meaning. And it's not just saving the world, it's, it's, it's working with, with our, our life. Um, so I've never liked the separation between the sacred and the secular, like we have sacred work that happens at church and secular work that happens out there um, like church work and ministry is spiritual and God work and the employment that you do to pay your bills is just secular um, I don't buy that one bit I don't I don't believe in that um, in fact I believe there will come a day when there will be no need for accrediting conditions um, uh, when you think about it um There'll be no need for ministry and teaching and preaching. I fully intend to be out of a job when Jesus comes Um, and have to find other work. Uh, I mean, can you imagine if Jesus were to return and you have the opportunity to see Jesus and be with Jesus and ask Jesus all the questions you've always wanted answers to? And he's there. And, and you get a text on whatever heaven replaces the smartphone with. And it says, Chris will be teaching a class on dirt work of what the ancient rabbis said about the, the holy and the secular. Um, who's going to leave the room that Jesus is in to come down and listen to Chris preach a sermon? I hope you're not going to come down and listen to me preach it's a sermon when Jesus is there. Uh, and so... Uh, uh, and Jesus might even get you out of time to go to lunch. Um, who knows? But I fully intend for my position as pastor to be obsolete, unneeded. But I completely believe that we are still made for work. And, and even before there was sin, there was purpose. And that the, the purpose was outlined um, uh, in the in the cultural mandate. And it's going to outlive the, uh, the Great Commission. when when Jesus comes again and there's no need for a great commission, there will still be a cultural mandate. If you get to Revelation 22 and we still do work and have purpose and meaning. And so, uh, even if you feel like you just do secular work, please know that that is sacred work. Um, There is no such thing as non-sacred work. Uh, You are called, deeply called, to the cultural mandate. And it's a beautiful, sacred Paul, straight from God, and outlined it very clearly in this one. Well, this week we're going to be talking about um, the, our love for the other. Uh, when God confronts Adam about his sin, Adam looked at his wife, who had, he had just referred to as his very self, and now in the light of his new brokenness, he created distance between himself and her, between himself and the other. Uh, he accused her of being the problem. Um, he sought to clearly distinguish between himself and her. She is the sinner. She is the cause. She is the problem. Uh, and there's um, not one of us that isn't living with this brokenness still. This, again, is the human reality. Um, before we have uh, a name of someone with whom we're supposed to be one, we can, we can see the distance between us and the brokenness. Their problem should be my problem, and vice versa. Um, despite our autonomy, we should be entwined um, uh, in a way that what goes wrong with him goes wrong with me. Uh, we, together, reflect the image of God, whether we can name that person or whether it's those people, whoever um, it is, that demographic, that other side of the aisle. Uh, they're the problem. They're the cause. They're the other We all live with this broken relationship and we can see it every day. And the other uh, uh, in the relationship in the garden was Eve. And this may be the other relationship that the church has worked on hard um, and spent a lot of time trying to redeem. We talk all the time about love for God and love for people. It's not surprising. The great commandment comes with that second part to love people. Jesus made it very clear that as much as we are to love God, as much as we are to redeem that relationship that was broken at the moment hid, it is equally important that we um, also love others. And so the church has been taking this very seriously for the last 2,000 years. And just as uh, Res linked into the idea of tension last week, um, I don't know that there's any command in Scripture that just naturally brings more tension than the Great Commandment. I mean, I can spend the next month unpacking the ways that loving God, loving people, um, can seem mutually exclusive. It can seem like an either-or venture. Uh, But for the sake of time, I'll just say this. A great deal of loving God has been compromised under the guise of loving people. We want so definitely to love people that we ignore things that God has said and called us to. I mean, we say things like, God's Word is clear... But to say that would be so unloving. And so we, we create a distance between those two commands. And oftentimes we excuse our lack of love for people by saying we're just obeying God's Word. We're just doing what God said. That's why I can't be loving and open in relation with those people because I'm faithful to God's Word. We throw around phrases like love God, and love people, so it's just that easy. But please know that if we actually attempt to do those two things... If you really take them seriously, you will win. in tension. Where does loving God, and because you love God so much, you have to uh, refuse these things, get in the way of loving people? Where do we want to love people so much that we ignore some of the things that God has commanded us to? So what I'd like to unpack just a little bit today is what it might look like to take that piece of God's Word seriously. To love God is such a way... Um, as He has called us to love Him, as He desires for us to love Him, and to completely love people. Because, trust me, it's not as easy as it sounds. So what I want to do is look at um, the book of Romans a little bit, where Paul blends these two um, together. We're going to be reading in Romans chapter 13 to begin with. Um, You can follow along in your own Bible or app, or you can follow the words on the screen. Owe nothing to anyone except your obligation to love one another. If you love your neighbor, you will fulfill the requirements. Of, you will fulfill the requirements of God's law. When the commandment says you must not commit adultery, you must not murder, you must not steal, you must not covet. These and other such commandments are summed up in one commandment: love your neighbor as yourself. Love does not, does no wrong to others. so love fulfills the requirements of God's law. This is all the more urgent. But well, you know how late it is. Time kind of like is running out. Wake up, for your salvation is nearer now than when you first believed. This is the word of the Lord. Now, this passage comes on the heels of Paul telling the Romans to speak citizens. If you uh, want to go back and read the first part of chapter 13, which I certainly recommend, uh, Paul basically tells people to do the things you're supposed to do. Um, live in the the kind of life that you're supposed to live in. You can live in the world um, peacefully. Uh, do the things that good citizens... Then Paul drops the statement um, that we're not to owe anything to anyone. Uh, that verse is, is deeply tangled up in the Roman um, understanding of patronage, which is the system that Paul drew a lot of his metaphors from, where somebody um, wealthy would would, would do a, uh, what's called a caris, a grace for somebody. They would take care of somebody under them, and all they required in return was this faithfulness. You now basically serve... Them and it was uh, it was a system that really worked, uh, but it also had huge entanglements. When you were committed to somebody who had shown you grace, a charis, um, you you were expected to return um, with faithfulness to them. So, it was, uh, so it was a huge debt that you carried. And so, when Paul says, Oh, no man anything," he's kind of he's kind of shifting this this grace and faith, this charis and pista to Christ like that's where your allegiance is supposed to be and so some of these other um, commitments can kind of get in the way of that um, and I'd love to unpack that more uh, because Paul does draw from it a lot but um, uh, but uh, he, he basically says you know don't owe anything uh, to anyone except you do have one thing you absolutely owe so in the midst of saying you know be careful you don't get too tangled up just remember, there's one thing you are already completely and utterly deeply uh, entangled in, and that is your love for people. You are you are obligated to love people. So, draw, so Paul is drawing from maybe the most universally understood idea of obligation in this culture when he talks about how we're supposed to love one another. You're supposed to love each other like like this patronage system, like where you are faithful to someone else. You are committed to them. But even more, he ties it to our obedience to God. He says, Owe oh, no man anything except for your obligation to love one another. If you love your neighbor, you will fulfill the righteous requirements of the law. Now again, this is nothing new to us. Most of us have heard a thousand times how you can wrap the entire Old Testament law into this phrase, love God and love people. That's a, that's a fairly well known concept, whatever commandment you dig up from the Old Testament, you can make it fit into one of those two. It's either going to be a way that you love God or it's going to be a way that you love people. Either you're doing something out of your love for God or you're going to do it out of your love for people. But as I said before, this invites a great deal of tension. What happens when loving God causes you to do something that seems unloving to people? what happens when, when people put you in a situation where to show them love feels like you're not loving God the way you're called to. I think Paul does a really good job of addressing that very tension. because look what he says um, right after the passage we read a minute ago. The night is almost gone. The day of salvation will soon be here. So remove, from, remove your dark deeds like dirty clothes and put on the shining armor of right living. Because we belong to the day we must live decent lives for all this year. Don't participate in, in, in the darkness of wild parties and drunkenness or sexual promiscuity or moral living or quarreling and jealousy. instead close yourself with the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ and do not let yourself think about ways to indulge your evil, now we have a church, right? This is, what we're, this is what we're used to. Remove your dark and dirty deeds. Put on the armor of right living. Don't participate in wild parties of drunkenness and sexual promiscuity and moral living. This is the stuff we're used to in church. Like this is uh, don't indulge your evil desires. And this would typically fall into the category of loving God, right? Uh, we really don't have any other explanation for why we shouldn't. Do those things things that you want to do the things that you know there's no uh, there's no really so we come up with excuses that you, know, you can you know get cirrhosis the liver or whatever um, but i mean really you're not if you're not hurting anyone else why not do it right um, and the answer is simply put because god said not to i guess uh, we find ourselves back in the garden again questioning why can't i have this fruit like out of all the fruit that's been given, why not this like, fruit? What's the reason? What's the explanation? give the answer is because you were commanded not to. It's that simple. So, when we run into these lists that Paul gives, like this one here, um, the, the reason is simple. God has told us how we should live. And as we said two weeks ago, we want to love God. We, we love Him as He comes to us, we love Him as He presents Himself to us, not as we would have Him to be. We're the form that we fashioned for Him that looks an awful lot like us. But the real God, the real God has told us how we should live. And we can either choose to obey or don't obey. But, as we look back at the great commandment to love God and love people, it's lists like this that begin to create the tension. Because as we obey God, because we love God, and because the great commandment commands us to love God, we avoid things like wild parties and drunkenness, respectful, sexual promiscuity and moral living, evil desires, blah, blah, blah. But not everyone does. And so now what? As we take seriously God's desire for us, and out of love for Him, we obey those desires. How do we love someone who doesn't do those things? How do we love someone who lives completely different than the way we do? Now we have the tension? Is, loving, is it loving to allow them to live however they choose? Is it unloving to expect them to obey the commandments of Scripture? Because we're so passionate about them because we love God. Welcome tension, my old friend. And see how Paul begins begins to unpack this tension. Because to do that, we have to flip to the next chapter. Now, remember, in the original letter, there wouldn't have been chapter breaks; so those were added much later. So this would have just read straight through like one letter. Uh, through uh, the, the original stretch. So, right after Paul says that he lists, so they don't do these things, he says, accept one another. Or accept another believer who are weak in the faith. And so, don't argue with them about what they think is right and wrong. First, if one person believes it's alright to eat anything, but another believer with a sensitive conscience will eat holy vegetables. Those who feel free to eat anything must not look down on those who don't. And those who don't eat certain foods must not condemn those who do. For God has accepted them. Who are you to condemn another or someone else's servant? Their own master will judge whether they stand or fall. And with the Lord's help, they will stand and receive his approval. Now, I'm going to be honest, these verses make uh, some of us really uncomfortable. Um, to, to do well start to get itchy when they were reading this. Um, anyone else immediately want to argue when you hear that? Like, a lot of people, um, I've talked about this chapter um, for years, uh, and if I had a dollar for every time I just read that passage, people go, so wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. So what you're saying is, is, uh, is people can just do whatever they want if they think it's right. I'm always, hey, hold on, hold on. I don't say anything. I just read the passage. I'm not saying anything. Um, I am agree with Paul said, but, and I'm honest, none of us are super comfortable with Paul's words here. How do you function in that world? Well, I can believe something is wrong because I believe it's wrong. It is wrong. And someone else can believe the same thing is not wrong, and because they believe it's not wrong, it's not wrong. See, that's basically what Paul said. I'm not even interpreting. Now, Christian culture, where we put a premium on obeying God's Word and living a lifestyle that fits God's word, this understanding of morality is insufferable. It, 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 in fact, it goes against our understanding of reality. The two plus two is four and can never be five. Like we like objective truth. So, what do we do with passages like this? Well, first of all, I want to step back for just a half a second um, and take the whole thing together. Let's, let's hold this whole passage together. Paul starts by telling us that we have a debt, an obligation to love one another. And that's not new to us because we all know the great commandment. Love God. Love people. That follows up his commandment to love people with an admittedly kind of vague explanation for how we should live in the world. He doesn't get super specific, but it's a list of do's and don'ts. Don't don't live like this. He gives us a general lifestyle expectation. We're, we're generally supposed to be moral people. Immorality is basically Frowned upon, and we're expecting to live godly lives. Now, these two things don't necessarily go together. You have to get to love people and also to live godly. Love people and live godly. So when we read what sounds like subjectivity in that next passage, say whatever you think is right, but they think is right. We have to remember that Paul is not teaching metaphysics here. He's not teaching about the nature of reality. He's not even talking about the nature of morality. I believe Paul is talking about how we live in a world where we're supposed to be obedient to God and truly love people. And we do that by giving them space. Now, before I can explain exactly what I mean by that, there are a couple of things that I would like to point out from this passage that jumped out to me because of the hundreds of times that I've talked to people about this passage because it's one of my favorite. First, I'm pretty sure that everyone who ever reads this passage automatically assumes that they are the stronger brother. Like, it's just the most natural thing. Uh, except other believers who are weak in the faith and don't argue with them about what they think is right or wrong. Every single one of us puts we never see ourselves as the weak brother. Like, we never go, yeah, don't jump, don't. Like, we, we always... I'm, I'm pretty sure that just part of human nature uh, is to assume that our convictions are the right ones. And that, uh, if, if we thought differently, we would probably change them. But we just assume we're in the right spot. Anyone who follows fewer rules than us is clearly not serious about following Jesus. Those poor, weaker um, brothers. And those whose convictions are stricter than ours are clearly legalistic, like psycho fundamentalists. Like, we're the ones who stand in the sweet spot. Anyone that way is is lawless. Anyone that way is legalistic. We're the ones who nailed it. No matter who you are, when you read passages like this, you stand in the in the the right place. Um, We're the ones who have it right. Anyone else is still a little off. And I just say that (laughs) um, because I want to say that typically when reading passages like this, we plug ourselves into a particular vantage point, um, and it can be helpful to try to swap positions. Um, so as you're looking at someone who is living lawlessly, remember, there are people looking at you that way. And they're going, man, that person doesn't uh, even care about politics. And when you look at legalists, and you're like, I mean, they've just made their faith nothing but laws. There are people looking at you that way. Like, we have to realize, it just helps our understanding of the passage to move vantage points. And the second thing I want to point out is that there is a third vantage point. Listen to this. Those who feel free to do anything... Must not look down on those who don't. Those who don't eat certain foods must not condemn those who do, for God has accepted them. Oftentimes there's a fundamental flaw in our thinking when we read this passage and okay, all we see is subjectivity. If we read this and all we see is subjectivity, it doesn't really matter what we do, it's just to do it our life. At least we have a, a fundamental flaw at the beginning. See, the question that generally follows a reading of this passage goes you know, something like this: So, a person can just do whatever they want and be accepted by God. That's what most people ask. So, what's the telling me is? They can just pretty much do whatever they want and be accepted by God. And to be honest, did anyone feel that creeped in when I read it? Anybody? Did that bother anybody a little bit? Oh, I'm gonna look on because nobody in the room is be a good look. That phrase for God's accepted them bugs us. We can think of people that we don't want to apply that to. Surely he hasn't accepted them. Like, surely. Like, we all have that person. Even if they don't do the things uh, that that you are pretty darn sure biblical, God has accepted them? But they don't do this. How could God have accepted them? Now, I don't know if you've noticed the fundamental flaw, but here's the problem. For us to look at someone else's behavior and assume that it's not godly enough or biblical enough to be accepted by God, we are automatically assuming that our behavior is godly enough or biblical enough to be accepted by God. And that is how easily self-righteousness sneaks in. The second you're going, he's accepted. Then, you're automatically assuming, based on your merit, he's accepted you. See, the reality of the situation is that a correct brother having an issue with an incorrect brother, and of course you're the correct brother, always, but that's not the situation. The situation is an inadequate, utterly inadequate brother with a particular conviction who only stands acceptable by God before God because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, trying to figure out how to do life with another utterly inadequate brother with a different particular conviction who only stands acceptable by God because of the work of Jesus Christ. That's the reality of this situation. We think it's some explanation of objective morality that there. this is good. No, none of us measure up. And you're trying to figure out how to do life. someone who doesn't measure up and only stands in the grace of God is trying to figure out how to do life with another person who doesn't measure up and only stand before God because of the work of Jesus Christ. But if you don't approach this passage with the understanding that you are only acceptable because of the sheer grace of God, then you might make the mistake of thinking that this is an argument about right and wrong. which would be objective? And that's not what this is. Paul's not talking about objective morality. He's talking about how two people who are only standing before God, because of the grace of Jesus Christ, can live together. But the only objective reality about standing before God is that you can only do it in Christ. That's the only objective morality present here is that we can only stand before God because of the work of Jesus Christ. So Paul tells us that we have a deep obligation to love one another. Then he tells us to, to live for God rather than for ourselves. And then as if he fully grasps the tension that that creates, he says this, Who are you to condemn someone else's servant? Their master will judge whether they stand or fall. And with the Lord's help, they will stand, and receive his approval. This is so easy on paper. And it's so hard in real life. But the way we truly love others... While standing firm in the lifestyle convictions that God has laid on our hearts is to understand that they don't answer to you. You have to give them space to stand before God. Now this chapter, chapter 14 of Romans, one of my favorites and Paul goes on to talk about valuing one day over another. You have people where some Sunday is the Lord's day, another day. I think mean, every day is God's day. You know. what, 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 what's the are comfortable drinking or not drinking or whatever behaviors fall into this category. But the reason we started the study in chapter 13, rather than just immediately diving into the subjective tensions of chapter 14, is because Paul's ultimate advice on how to uh, handle doing life together, when we don't agree on, on how we should do it, um, is to give up your position for the good of the other. It's totally countercultural for us. But Paul basically says it's the other person's status that you need to consider, not your own. If, you, if we run to the bottom, we don't really have time to fully unpack it. Uh, but if, if, if you're doing something that someone else considers sin, Paul uses the word stumbling. Don't stumble your brother. He says your brother is far more important than the thing if you like to have a beer, that's fine, but if, if you are not think a beer is going to hurt someone else, aren't they more important than the beer in that moment? He starts this whole thing out by saying, you have a deep obligation to love people. If you walk into a room and, and someone is drinking a beer, that bothers you. Don't you have an obligation to love that person more than getting hung up on the beer? I don't know why I go to beer. It's the easy ones. There's a million a Paul says, don't make somebody stumble. Don't do it. It's that easy. Whatever it is, your brother is more important than eating that food. Your, your brother is more important than having a drink than, than that drink than, than that thing. And this could, could seem like a weird responsibility in, in the middle of a discussion on convictions versus liberties, which is why it's so important to go back to chapter 13. Because Paul started out chapter 14 he with, hey, hey, don't judge. You don't judge and you don't want your go blah blah. And on. Which, by the end of it, he's like, "Hey, think about the other person. Don't stumble. Don't don't do things that are going to hurt somebody else just because you can." So, the only way that makes sense is if we step back to to, to chapter thirteen and remember that we have debt, an obligation. Oh, no way anything except this. You have to love one another. That's the root of the whole thing. Of course, they're the most important person at the table. It's your brother. So, in a nutshell, our greatest law, our deepest responsibility is to love people. To love God in the way that He has called us to love Him. To live the way He's called us to live. And when those two things seem impossible together, then we just trust God to be God. And we just love Him. But what does that mean here at Open Table? Well, this is uh, this year at least we're focusing on the role that authenticity place in redeeming the poor relationships that were broken by sin in the fall, and no passage shows the the correlation between love and authenticity better than this one. Paul basically says uh, is, is, what he says here is that love, loving someone, truly loving them, you have to give them space to be themselves. You have to give them the space to stand before God. Otherwise, you're loving an illusion that doesn't really exist. Because I believe that most of the hurt and disappointment that we find in relationships is because we fall in love with a mask. We fall in love with, it, with something that doesn't exist. Whether it's a them that we create, whether it's a them that they show us, and when we find out that that isn't real, that hurts. I think most of the pain comes from falling in love with a fake. And Paul says that if you're going to love for real, you have to let it be real stuff. so how do you respond to this normally I just in chapter 14 of Romans I would pull up like a bunch of fun hot buttons and we can't even imagine somebody else would be allowed to do it just to the people, honestly um, it's fun just uh, to see if you can even imagine that being acceptable and how to accept someone who does that Can you leave them in God's hand? Right now, I don't even know if it's the hot button sin issues that are so divisive and dangerous. Right now, we're we're just we're divided in our society over nonsense, highly emotional and incredibly powerful nonsense. Don't get me wrong, but we're polarized over this, um, so polarized over this nonsense that I don't know that. That there's never been a time that Romans 14 is more important to our culture. We have to learn to let people be who they are. We have, we have to do that. So especially here at Open Table, our business statement declared that we can only accomplish our vision as we work together to be reduced to the poor relationships broken by the fall. And that means that we need to. Um, remember how to, to love and live for the other. That's one of the relationships, that distance between you and the other, that brokenness that, that makes us um, draw away from the other. We have to redeem that and heal that. That's part of our mission here. So obviously there are relationships where we have to help shape behavior. Like not every relationship that tells as Parents, we have to shape the behavior of our children. That's that's part of it. Sometimes you're in a discipleship position where somebody is coming to you for help on how they should live against you, help shape their behavior. I'm not saying this is a total hands-off, you know, everything. Um, you know, we, we do help shape people's convictions and vision, but the majority of judging and brokenness are people we don't even know for real. And we judge them based purely on a single thing that annoys us. So Leo, I would love to respond to this message today is, as we sing one last song together, and as we gather together around the table, try to come up with a name, a face, a real person in your life. Maybe someone that lives in your house, even. Maybe that name that pops up immediately, and you're like, no, that would be too hard. Maybe that one. Maybe grab that one before it slips away. Maybe even someone right here in the room, but someone who annoys you or someone with whom you struggle to really do life with because of the way they live. Because of the things they do. fact, like if you can't think of anyone else, think of that Baxter or that Anti Baxter, that person on the other side of the aisle, that person um, who seems to be living a totally different America than you live in. So whoever you come up with, I want you to ask yourself two questions. Pull the real name. Walk it down, and then ask yourself two questions about that person. Do I take seriously my obligation, my absolute responsibility to love them? Do I own that? or do I brush that off like it's yeah, but not that person? Do I own my absolute responsibility to love that person? to resist the urge to be Adam and point the finger at them and say it's them, they're the problem. They're the ones who give it. But do I take seriously my responsibility to love them? And the second question is this. Do I believe God is big enough to be their God? To reveal himself to them, to speak to them, to convict them, even to judge them with Do I believe that God is God? Or do I think that I have to be? Do I take seriously my role to love them? And do I honestly believe God is big enough to do So, real names picture their face and ask those questions. Do I truly believe and accept that I'm under a strict obligation to love them? And do I actually believe that God is big enough to take care of the things in their life and love me? And if the answer to either of those questions is no, then you know where the work speed up.